You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. So, um, for those of you who are new to the room, uh, I'm Tracy Hutchison. I have been asked by the organisers to introduce a couple of these sessions and facilitating one tomorrow myself, long-term broadcaster and journalist. Um, so, welcome to this um, really terrific conversation. I'm sure ecosystems in collapse. Slightly clear, but nonetheless. Um, we did hear this morning from David Spratt talking about um, the three degree tipping point, that, that three degrees of warming at which ecosystems and biospheres are irreversibly set on a fairly catastrophic course. Um, and that he outlined that what he called the blueprint for, but that's better, um, <laughs> the blueprint of the planetary threshold of, of the hothouse Earth. Uh, so to moderate this session with these eminent men, um, I'm delighted to welcome award-winning journalist Joe Chandler to introduce, introduce our speakers and moderate this session. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tracy. And welcome, everybody. Thanks so much for showing up. Um, as I said this morning, nothing says I love you like saving the planet. Um, so welcome. Um, and I've just learned a new term, a mammal. As opposed to a panel. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm just going to really quite briefly introduce our medalists and um, uh, because I think we really want to hear from them and not from me. So uh, really just to set it up, we're here to talk about um, the this session is around looking at ecosystems in collapse, the biodiversity and ecological emergency. And obviously, we were in the throes of a large-scale extinction event even before the devastation that we've seen this summer through drought and bushfire. Um, so we're very privileged and honoured uh, to have these scientists here today because they've all got the credentials, the history and the passion to give us some really deep perspective on what's played out so far, what they anticipate might happen next and what must be done about it. Um, so I'm going to introduce the first of our panellists now, David Lindenmeyer. So David is a uh, Professor of Ecology and Conservation at, at Conservation Biology at the Australian National University. Um, his credentials list, when I looked at it, is really quite formidable and very long, so I'm just going to um, crush it down a little bit. He's a landscape ecologist and conservation biologist specialising in forest ecology and management, habitat fragmentation, Applied Wildlife and Conservation Management, Endangered Species Conservation and Extinction Risk, amongst other things. And what a pity it is that those are all such live areas of interest. So David, if I could ask you to speak. Thank you very much. Um, this is quite an interesting process here. I, I, I must admit that I feel almost ashamed to be a white male on, on a panel like this. I, I do work very closely with Indigenous people and I think the Indigenous voice really does need to be heard in terms of land management and, and thinking about the custody of Australia's natural assets. So just a, another segue, I'm sitting on stage with someone I used to work with and that's Charles Werner. In 1980, 1980 uh, I used to swim behind Charlie Werner with a, a shopping basket as Charlie collected corals. And Charlie's original part of his career was actually working on this extraordinary animal called the Grand Glider, which is 
kind of like a small biting koala. And so Charlie made the, the journey from being a forest ecologist to an extraordinary marine scientist, whereas I made the journey from being an extraordinarily bad marine scientist to a forest ecologist. And so there's a kind of interesting synergy here, except perhaps most importantly that climate change affects uh, manifest, manifestly pervasive right throughout both marine ecosystems and forest ecosystems. So when I worked for Charlie in 1980, and then did plant physiology experiments at James Cook University. The background CO2 levels in our experiments that we were doing in classes was 338 parts per million CO2. So if you go onto the website for Mauna Lao in Hawaii, where they measure this stuff in the atmosphere now, it's not modeled, it's measured as of February the 12th, Two days ago, it was 415 parts per million. So again, this is not a computer model; it's a direct measurement. And I worked cl very closely with an elderly, elderly gentleman who worked with David Keeling, who first started making those measurements way back in the 1950s. And it's quite extraordinary to see what's now called the Keeling curve, and and the very strong upward trend in. CO2 two levels in the atmosphere. Now, it does include other things like methane, which have even stronger greenhouse gas forcing um, impacts. So then I think about some climate deniers that are saying, well, this is not caused by humans, it's, it's caused by other things like volcanic eruptions. So I talk to my geologist colleagues who say, well, sadly, that's not the case. You can actually tell the different kinds of carbon in the atmosphere from isotopic measurements, and it's derived from fossil fuel emissions. So there is a direct relationship between greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and temperature as a physical principle. And I, I think about this a lot when people are asking me about this, and I think about other things like what happens if I go to the top of this building and drop a brick off the side, what happens to it? It falls to the ground. It's a, it's a physical principle. It's called the law of gravity. So when you fill the atmosphere full of greenhouse gases, it's a physical principle. It's a greenhouse effect. So then I start talking to my geologist friends a little bit more deeply about this, and they tell me about a time, a galaxy far, far away, a long, long time ago, called the Eocene, about 60 million years ago, when the atmospheric levels of carbon dioxide were around about 560 parts per million, and it timed up to 1,000 parts per million. And there are reasons why that happened, continents breaking up and other stuff, but the key thing here is that the temperature was four to five degrees warmer than it was than it is now. And in some places, some people are suggesting maybe eight or even more. So to me, the notion of what's happening here is that there really is a climate emergency. There really is a climate emergency and we really do need to, to think about what it's telling us and do something about it. It's a clear and present danger. So if I now look at Australia and I think about what Australia's just been in the last few weeks and last year. The last year was the hottest ever year ever recorded and for many parts of Australia, also the driest year ever recorded. And the record temperatures in Melbourne and Sydney, for example, are virtually impossible to set without climate change. People have modelled these kinds of things. You know, the concept of Penrith, west of Sydney, having 49 degrees is, is almost incomprehensible. And the Bureau of Meteorology having to develop a new colour to add to the map for temperatures above 50 degrees. 
So then I think about, well, much is said about the accuracy of computer models, climate models, and modeling climate is not that easy, we know that. Uh, but economists couldn't even predict the global financial crisis, yet that's orders of magnitude more simple than what we're doing with the climate. So then I think about biodiversity, and I think about the plants and animals that are actually integrating climate and weather on an almost daily basis. And if you go back to the very roots of ecology, it's actually climate that governs their patterns of distribution and abundance. Right back to Nelson in 1927 when he first started to see the discipline of ecology emerge. So distributions of things are changing rapidly all over the planet. It doesn't matter whether it's tree lines going up or whether it's tropical fish invading temperate waters off Tasmania. And widespread trees, we, we see background levels of tree, a tree death at levels 10 to 100 background levels for, for the forests that we work in. And then I come back to our friend, the greater glider. The greater glider, this extraordinary animal, a racist nightmare. It comes in a black form and it comes in a white form and it interbreeds. <laughs> and that animal was once common just about everywhere you looked. And you go to North Queensland where there's this extraordinary small, small animal, 89% decline in the last 20 years. In the forests of Victoria, just an hour and a half drive from here, 80% decline. That animal is, is susceptible to, to fire, it's susceptible to logging, but it's also a very heat sensitive animal. It's very sensitive to climate change, particularly overnight temperatures. And so then we come back to the links between climate and fire, as we've seen. That when it's wet and when it's cool, it basically doesn't burn. And when it's hot and when it's dry and it's windy, it does. So climate and weather are the two key drivers of forest fire danger index and the, and the, uh, the fire systems that we're seeing now. The, the culture wars will have us talking about hazard reduction burning and why we didn't burn more, more parks and those kinds of things. But actually the dominant driver that we have to take into account when we are analysing fire behaviour and, and other things is weather and climate. So the, the effects of fire are really quite pronounced. We've been looking at what's been happening in East Gippsland in the last few weeks. It's a really stark outcome. Some ecosystems have burned, not twice, not three times, but four times in the last 25 years. The natural fire return interval in those systems is between 50 and 100 years. So those ecosystems are sitting on the brink of collapse. They don't need more fire. They need less disturbance to reset on the, on the recovery trajectory. So what are some of the solutions? Well, clearly, we need to think about the number of stresses that some of these ecosystems are dealing with. Some of these ecosystems are dealing with a change in climate, a change in fire regimes, intensive logging operations, the impacts of exotic animals such as horses and deer. They're not geared to deal with so many disturbances in such a rapid succession. We have to take out some of those key drivers those stresses if those systems are going to have any hope of, of persisting. And then we, then we hear other things. People say, well, what are we going to do for timber if we don't log our native forests? And here in Victoria, the answer is absolutely staring you in the face. Victoria produces 3.9 million tonnes of eucalypt pulp logs every year to make it paper. 2.9 million tonnes gets exported to Japan and China. And often we then we import them back to Australia after having shipped them 6,000 kilometres offshore. 
So if we're talking about maintaining jobs in the state and thinking about new economies, we should be actually processing some of that material here and rethinking what the values are of some of our natural assets. So how does that fit into the equation? It fits into the equation through thinking about reducing emissions, that's clear, but also increasing the amount of carbon that's stored in some of these ecosystems. And maintaining intact forest is one of the critical things that we can do. There are other really important things to do as well. The Murray-Darwin Basin used to have somewhere between 20 and 23 billion trees. Now it's at 8 billion trees. So there's enormous opportunities to revegetate parts of those catchments and to renovate farm dams. 650,000 farm dams in the Murray-Darwin Basin need renovating with trees and tree cover and other changes. Is that a big effect? Absolutely. It's about the, the effect of, of the, the landfill sector in terms of emissions. So lots of important and exciting things can be done to tackle, uh, to tackle these problems. So to me, that's the new economy, the new opportunities, and the things that we can really do to start to turn around some of the problems that we're dealing with in this conference. I'll leave it there. Thank you.
thing to say, give it away with the client skin. <laughs> but that was a very long time ago. Um, but I was. And um, when someone said that humans are producing too much carbon dioxide, that would change the climate up. <laughs> and that persisted for a little while, and I have to admit that um, I someone pointed out a book that I published um, a long, long time ago. I found some white coral, uh, I found some white coral put in the book and said some white disease that these corals are getting. I had no idea it was anything to do with climate change. But I did straighten out the climate change bit very quickly. I got a big it had to be, this Google obviously wasn't there, nor in fact, this one there this time. Um, and I certainly found out pretty quickly the, uh, the basic truth about what carbon dioxide did in the atmosphere. And after that, I took it very, very seriously. Um, but it was not part of my job, and it was, my job was to remind everybody else's business about the research that was done at the Australian Institute of Marine Science, where I was sort of I was the chief scientist, and um, and we moved on. Um, and uh, I was, I suppose, what provoked me in the end was the ABC they had put on. And other journalists, they not this one. They put on a scientist about climate change, and they always put on a sceptic to counter it, to balance it. They said, and that really annoyed me in the end. And so um, <clears throat> I disappeared from my institute for a year and a half with my family in France, there to study climate change more than I've ever studied for any university degree. And I came back and wrote um, the book, yeah, uh, um, uh, A Reef in Time, The Great Bay Reef from Beginning to End. And uh, that was the cat among the pigeons because I'd stitched together so many different sorts of sciences. And to cut a long story short, that about six months later, I was giving a, an emergency presentation to the Royal Society in London with David Attenborough next <coughs> to me as adjudicator. And uh, that was a, to the Great Hall there, it was packed solid. And I was then saying the IPCC was not conservative, it was just dead wrong. And the reason I was so sure the IPCC was wrong is that I had a lot of research done by Exxon, and that was exactly what we heard about this, uh, this morning, and I've never heard that referred to ever, ever before or since, but that is why I was so right, and the IPCC was so wrong. Thank you, Exxon. <laughs> so today, um, I'm going to talk about, I want to talk about three things very briefly. One is bringing up the date about the Great Barrier Reef, what's going on there. Uh, secondly, about the um, what's become of the um, sort of um, information, the encyclopedia of, uh, of corals, um, uh, that uh, our website. And the third is a, uh, a wonderful idea that's just just been born as of the end of last year about uh, making a, a coral biobank. Now I'll go through those in reverse because it makes sense that way. The coral biobank, the idea of the coral bank, biobank is that uh, we collect every species of coral starting on the Great Barrier Reef, which is about just over 70% of all the species of the Indo-Pacific, uh, collect them and keep them alive in aquaria indefinitely and export bits and pieces all over the world to all the many uh, aquaria all over the world 
public and private. And so when they, I won't say if they go extinct, I'll say when and if they go extinct in the wild, we will have them in aquaria. And that may seem a pretty far-fetched thing, but it isn't. Corals can be kept in an aquaria indefinitely, and is now the technology of doing that is not difficult. So that is the plan at the moment. It's starting this year, and uh, I've got the job of collecting uh, all the different, all the species of coral on the Great Barrier Reef. It is no trivial thing, and uh, we've got some professional aquarium people to take it over from there. We've got DNA people to go into the DNA. We've got museums to cry to, 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 to preserve it in their cryogenic facility, and so on. So this is a tremendously important step to make. Uh, need I say it's not got any government support. Um, so the second subject I was going to talk on, like to talk on, is a website that I've spent an awful lot of my life building with uh, my three colleagues. It's called, we have a PowerPoint, uh, can we call the PowerPoint? Is that, can I do that from here? Um, oh, there, that's PowerPoint. That's what you can get if you uh, Google Corals of the World, you get that. That, that website is um, about as big as Qantas, it's as equally as complicated. It's, um, but it is fairly user-friendly, but the information it contains, it contains um, all, it's an encyclopedia of corals. Uh, not just according to what Charlie Barron says, but according to what Charlie Barron and the whole rest of the world uh, has to say. Um, it took a very long time to produce, and it was essentially done because I uh, produced a, a big three-volume book about corals, which was published in the year 2000. And I was seeing it was going out of date within years. It was going out of date very quickly. And this is a very, it was the most expensive publication in Australian history at that time. And so you don't just do another one. You don't do another version. You don't do an update. What you do do is a website. And from uh, about 2005, uh, we started doing this website. And it's now used um, absolutely all over the world. And, uh, I think if you've all gone to the very large expense of buying the books, Corals of the World, chuck them in the wheelie bin, you know. <laughs> now that is what our website should look now, should look like now. Uh, but it doesn't look like that because uh, we launched it in 2016 and we thought, wow, we're going to be able to fund the rest of this thing. Uh, there was two more jobs to do. One was very big and the other one was very small. The very big job was to integrate all our knowledge of corals with an uh, information bank about the environment. And all, all the environmental work of NOAA and all the colleagues, all our colleagues, working on national parks, marine parks, uh, you name it, you can lay on maps and then you can ask the most sophisticated of questions right down to species level. Um, uh, that hasn't been done. And I do think now it never will be done, but if we ever got serious about conserving corals, it definitely should be done. But anyhow, and the second one is called Coral ID, which is also not there. Um, it, is, it is on this one, it's not in the one you'll be able to get up. Um, coral ID is, allows you all, everybody, to identify corals to species level. It's been a huge challenging task, it's taken us 
I think uh, if you added it all together, it would have taken about 12 people years of work. And it's not there now because the trivial amount of funding, perhaps one of um, uh, the Prime Minister's women's changing rooms would have been enough money to do it. But we, we can't, we run out of money ourselves, we can't do it. And so it sits there, it sits there spinning around on the computer, and the rest of the world has to come and ask me what comes what, and often for the projects they've got to go out and collect the stuff for them. So, what we did when we um, when we did initially launch our website there, uh, we put up this notice which effectively says, uh, "Don't cite this website yet. We still have to do finishing touches." And that notice has been there now for three years, as we've struggled to get any funding at all. And the reason we can't is the government announcement that they're going to spend four hundred forty million dollars on the Great Barrier Reef. Um, uh, most of our work has been funded from Americans, not Australians. Um, and they came to the party, yes, they'll, they'll, they, they were going to provide the funding for me to finish the identification module. And I said, don't worry, the Australian government's going to do it. Easily. And Robert in, well, Australian government isn't, and they won't. And that's it. So, um, that's the sad story about what has been a, uh, a very successful idea about getting all the information about corals onto a single website, which you can all access for nothing. The third thing um, uh, I was going to, or I'd like to just mention, is an update about the Great Barrier Reef. Um, I expect everyone here knows that it's been clobbered by mass bleaching and 2015-16 saw two consecutive years and roughly half of all the corals of the Great Barrier Reef died in those two years. And for those of you who are familiar with go diving or familiar with the Great Barrier Reef, it is really quite horrific to see um, what happened in those two years. Uh, that got a lot of publicity and all over the world, the Great Barrier Reef and um, uh, the outlook for that. Of course, I got very outspoken about that you know, on endless television, docos, and so on, complaining. Um, but last year, um, I joined a, uh, a, a trip, first trip of, well, the second trip of an organization that calls itself Legacy. It's a purely private thing, and uh, for very little money at all, we tripped all over the Northern Great Barrier Reef. I can tell you right now, if you want to see a coral reef, forget the Northern Great Barrier Reef because it virtually doesn't exist. But further to the north, right at the tip, there are pockets of nice, pretty, high diversity reefs that uh, I need to plunder in order to collect corals for the coral biobank. But as far as the Northern Great Barrier Reef is concerned, forget it, they're not there anymore. Um, to see any, to go anywhere in the Northern Great Barrier Reef, which used to be the highest diversity, easy the most pristine, there's no river runoff. There, I saw one crown of thorns in, the, in, in three weeks, and it was the thin and hungry crown of thorns, of course it's no great. Um, so that's incredibly what has now happened to the Great Barrier Reef. Further south, south from about Port Douglas, Things start to get uh, not good, but better, and further south, they're quite good in most places, except the inshore reefs. Now, all this is Russian roulette. Maybe 
maybe this year will be a good year. I think it will be because the sea temperature started off at a so, such a so low level in the Western Coral Sea. Maybe next year will be a good year, maybe not. The whole of the Great Barrier Reef could be wiped out in one single year. If you can wipe out one reef in the same conditions, you wipe out the whole lot. So this whole huge Australia's icon, the place that's so much, is so closely associated with Australia, is really facing an impossible dilemma, which is why we started the Coral Biobank. Um, if the, the Coral Biobank were to, de were to depend on the, the once pristine reefs of the Great Barrier Reef, the Northern Great Barrier Reef, it would all be too late. So on that, I can't help but be very gloomy when talking on this subject because there are no jokes. I usually have lots of jokes in my presentations to students and sometimes they get a bit rough, uh, especially <laughs> about their lectures. And, but no, there are no jokes on this one. Uh, we are in dire straits and uh, we're not getting much help.
to respond to multiple threats. So I think that the, the Great Barrier Reef, it's this iconic you know, um, entity, one of the, the, the great wonders of our planet, uh, and it is also under these multiple assaults that are a result of our impact on the environment. And, and I too worry that, um, you know, my, uh, my wife and daughter came down with me um, at the beginning of my sabbatical here uh, in mid-December, and we went up to Cairns um, to actually see the Great Barrier Reef. We wanted to see the Great Barrier Reef while we still could. Um, and I don't, you know, we didn't know how much longer we might have. That's very sad. It's very sad for me to imagine that my daughter not have that same opportunity with, with her children. Uh, that is a possible future. It's a future that we can still forestall. Um, if we keep warming below one and a half degrees Celsius, if we keep CO2 levels below you know, 420, 430 parts per million, maybe, um, if, and if we can slow it down, you know, adaptation you know, the corals have adapted to very large, slow changes in the geologic past. So to the extent that we can slow this down, maybe that provides them a glimmer of hope. But it's a, it's a tragedy that's unfolding. As a climate scientist, um, often I view this problem through the prism of theoretical models and, uh, and data crunching numbers. But when you come here to Australia, you actually see it very own two eyes. You see the impacts of climate change playing out, whether it's the Great Barrier Reef, and then uh, our family then next went to the Blue Mountains, which were not blue. Um, the, the, the skies were not blue. They were filled with smoke. Um, you could smell it. Um, you couldn't see the, the lush uh, rainforests uh, in the valley. Uh, you couldn't see the majestic cliffs and ridges um, that are so iconic. And so we felt like we were witnessing the destruction of, of this land. Um, and it was a very sad experience for us. And, and it drove home for me the fact that um, you know, this is not a theoretical problem. Uh, when you come here to Australia, you see that dangerous climate change has arrived. And the question is, are we going to respond in time? Uh, I was thinking. Um, there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago authored by a large number of eminent Australian scientists about renewal ecology. Um, one of the people that was author of that was David Bowman, a forest specialist now at um, University of Tasmania. Um, I went to Tas Tasmanian Highlands with, um, with uh, David Bowman last year researching a story, looking at some work he was doing around trying to save the pencil pines of Gondwan and species. And, this renewal ecology, I guess it's kind of like emergency ecology, this idea that we have to rethink the way that we manage um, around the recognition that Eden is long gone, Eden is lost, we can't restore these systems. This is about salvage in some ways. It was arc. Yeah, and these really confronting questions. Of, um, and we saw it for real in the fires that we've just had where we saw that really um, aggressive intervention to save the Woolamai Pine. Um, he's, Bowman's talking about similar interventions within the Tasmanian wilderness, like carving out areas to preserve pencil pines and other habitat. Um, these are confronting ideas that we have to recognise how much has been lost and then think really strategically and aggressively about what we might do to salvage something. I'm just wondering what you 
what your thinking is on, on that front, whether that's something that you're thinking about or what your own strategies are about where to from here. So in many cases, what I often think about is, is coming back to the number of stresses in the system and what, what stresses you can take out. So thinking about leverage points. So dealing with the amount of carbon in the atmosphere is a, is a big global problem. And, and so that's, that we, we have to do that, but there are other things that we can intervene with at, at a, that are more tractable more quickly. So uh, for example, um, in the mainland context, taking taking logging, which is a significant driver out of the system, because it interacts with fire. We know from our empirical work and work from others that that the way the forest is logged will make the fire more prone, uh, the forest more prone to higher severity fire layer. So if we take out that factor and then its interaction with how much fire is occurring, then we start to take some of the stresses away. For, for some of these systems to be able to, to recover. And there will be need for more heroic interactions. We've already seen that in Kangaroo Island with some of the threatened species there. So we, we do actually now have to, to do some mapping exercises as to which are the, the really important strategic bits, where, where have we got to intervene, what kinds of things can we do to, to intervene if we want to hold on to things like Wollongong Pine or or, or other upcoming species. We see places burning now that should never burn. Subtropical rainforest should never burn. So, okay, if that's the case, what do we need to do to make sure that the, the bits that haven't burned won't burn? And there will have to be some products there. Charlie, I guess the projects you've talked about here are you know, virtual coral collections and, and you know, collecting these the, you know, the specimens to have them in a laboratory somewhere, I guess that's the extreme idea of, of, of um, renewal or you know, ecological emergency life support. Well, um, it's, it's like a seed bank, and um, it's going to be needed. It will be needed. I think now is it's very hard to tell if the coral goes extinct. It just means if you, if you don't find it, you might find the next starter. But um, I know seven, seven of our corals that used to be common. I haven't seen in, in years, um, or in two years, and there's been a lot of diving and looking out for it. Um, so I do think we're going to get um, into extinctions very heavily over the next few years. And that's extinction of species. What really matters is the extinctions of the, of the habitat, of coral reefs themselves. Um, at least 30, perhaps anything up to 80% of all marine species have some part of their life cycle in a coral reef. If you look at the geological record of corals, and this has got the best geological record of, you can possibly have, um, the uh, a, a mass extinction, in all but one case, has got a prelude, the, the wiping out of corals. Um, so you wipe out corals, then the whole ecology of the ocean collapses. I'm afraid I think this is going to happen, and I think it's that serious. And I feel just so sorry for the people, the young people today, because they're going to face a horrific world. And I do believe this is going to happen. And um, it makes me very sad. Um, so not only our job at this with the Coral Bank is to preserve corals into the future 
so that they can be used to repopulate um, reefs that we've lost. But the turnaround time is going to be incredibly long. And also, um, the lag time, as we call it, of the oceans is at least 20 years. In other words, where is, the oceans are responding now to levels of carbon dioxide around about the turn of the century. It takes maybe, would this be right, Michael? You'd know more, much more about this than I would. About 20 years to that lag time to really kick in. It's like putting a saucepan on a stove. Slowly it warms to the stove. It comes into equilibrium with the flame under it. But it's a very slow process. So even if we were to wave a magic wand and stop emissions now, the oceans would keep warming for another 20 years on the level of carbon dioxide we have now. Is that OK to say that? Yeah, right. um, the, at the surface, um, the, the oceans are roughly in equilibrium with the CO2 concentrations. This is uh, actually, there's been some revision in the understanding uh, of this in, in more recent years because climate modelers use a a more appropriate modeling framework. Uh, now, we, we used to specify the CO2 level. Now we specify the carbon input into the atmosphere. And that allows for some of these uh, carbon cycle dynamics. For example, the ocean takes up uh, some of that uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And so it turns out, when you stop emitting carbon into the atmosphere, um, there's the thermal inertia of the ocean, which would cause the surface of the ocean to continue to warm up for decades. But you also have a dramatic increase in ocean uptake of carbon dioxide. So the atmospheric CO2 goes down. That almost cancels the thermal inertia of warming. And the bottom line is the warming at the surface that we see right now is a function of the cumulative emissions up to now. We stop emitting carbon, temperatures stop warming at the surface. The problem is that isn't true below the surface. Um, the farther down you go, the more of a lag time there is. Uh, with the deep ocean, it can be out of equilibrium by hundreds of years. It can take hundreds of years for the deep ocean to warm up. And where is that CO2 going, the atmospheric CO2? It's going into the ocean. That's not good. Um, ocean acidification continues to proceed even after we stop emitting carbon into the atmosphere. That's one of the reasons for worry here. I think we're at the point of going to questions from the audience now. And we've got someone with a microphone and we've got hands everywhere. Um, and if anybody decides to launch into their own soliloquy of opinion on something, we might cut you off at the knees. So I'm just telling you that um, we're here to have questions and I'll go the full Tony Jones if necessary. <laughs> Obviously it will be all hands on deck 
it would it would take an, a massive, a, an amazing and a massive effort. But do you think it's possible? I'm happy. I think we'll, we'll, I'm sure each of us has some thoughts here. Um, you know, thanks for the, for the, that question. It's 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 an important one. And, and at, at the margins, that can have an influence. Reforestation, the natural uptake of CO2 uh, can help. But ultimately, if we don't stop burning fossil fuels, the rest of it is like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. It doesn't make any difference. So we have to stop emitting carbon into the atmosphere. In addition to that. We also have to do these other things. Um, we have to increase natural carbon uptake uh, and reforestation, and there are lots of reasons to do that, right? Because climate is just one axis of this problem. Um, we're talking about biodiversity, we're talking about the stability of ecosystems. There are all these other reasons to want to preserve our, our terrestrial and marine ecosystems. So it's a no-brainer, but that alone isn't gonna do it. We've gotta stop burning fossil fuels. Go another question now, and I think our roving microphone has found somebody. Hi, um, it's really good to hear you talk about protecting the stability of marine ecosystems. And I know that globally there's a push at the moment to protect about 30% of the ocean, which is very welcome. I wonder. Um, with the push to stop fossil fuels, we're going to need a lot more renewables. And a lot of the um, materials for renewables are on the ocean floor. If we're protecting 30% of the ocean, it means that 70% is then up for grabs. What's your position on deep sea mining? Which involves dredging the floor for cobalt nodules. Yes, you're talking about uh, vents, um, undersea vents, and that's a big deal. Um, um, so um, I would say, of course, leave undersea vents and everything else you don't know about. Leave them alone until you do, uh, do, do know about them, that mining of undersea vents is going on without people having a clue what they're doing. Um, as far as uh, um, um, deep water, uh, resources. Um, if you're really wanting to go and get uh, calcium carbonate uh, limestone from deep water, go ahead. There's so much of it there. Don't make difference. There's the there's the oceans are alkaline. They will always be alkaline. And um, the, we really are concerned with the um, the top, say, a kilometre at the very most of, of, of the oceans. <laughs> And so that is what really matters. Um, these things, are, what is happening is moving so quickly that um, I just think uh, Michael hit the nail on the head again and again when it's, it's all about stopping what we're doing. And that really is about coal. It is about generating electricity and going into renewables. It is about all the things we know about but we just have to get on bloody or do it because it's going to be too late within a decade or two. So that's my abrupt answer to that. I'll note that we very nearly had, I think, the world's first big vent mining exercise just in Papua New Guinea, which um, appears to have, at the moment, anyway, run out of puff and money, but may well um, reappear again. 
Um, there's also a lot of um, nations in the Coral Sea area wanting to, you know, the nodules that the, you know, picking up the potatoes of, of rare earth on the bottom of the sea, and they're for this. Oh, there's no museum nodules there. Are they? Mm. Oh, they were. Mm. But as you say, nobody knows what will happen when you start messing around. With oh, that's right. Of so, um, yeah. Yes. Uh, okay. Another question. And we've got somebody. Yes, uh, in uh, Paul Hawkins' book, Drawdown, 12 of the top 20 options for sequestering carbon and pulling it out of the atmosphere are land-based. Uh, so there's regenerative agriculture, um, conservation, agriculture, timber forests, etc. So my question is, uh, how can we turn more farmers into citizen ecologists and carbon drawdown enthusiasts and involve urban communities in the process? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And we, we've had a project working with nearly 300 farmers for the last 21 years. And in many cases, what, what's actually needed is the methodology for state and federal governments to get involved in the methodology to, to allow another form of, of payments to diversify the business model for farmers so that you can actually incentivise their ability to, to increase replantings on their land to better protect patches of remnant vegetation and to include that as part of their farm planning. And there's, there's really good science to be able to, to show how to do that. It's, it's really the, the architecture and the scaffolding around that that's in the way. Because in many parts of Australia, once you go west of somewhere like Dubbo, in New South Wales or, or further out, actually carbon farming will become the most lucrative thing to do because almost everything else is, is incredibly marginal. Now you also have to have a lot of people working on the land, including indigenous folks for uh, early dry season burning and what have you, as well as, as uh, controlling and, and making money from other things such as controlling populations of goats and the like. So that you need people on the land, but you also need people doing other things such as promoting uh, natural regeneration and also tree planting. So there's a lot to do, but a lot of opportunities in, in what's really a new economy in this space. David, can I ask, do you uh, talk about LNP policies when you uh, talk to farmers? Because <laughs> <laughs> you're being there. Ch Charlie's from Queensland, <laughs> and, and that's another world there. The, the reality is that many, many of the landowners um, are not in step, they're out of step with what, what some of the, the pinstripe suits are doing in, in Canberra. And they, they want alternative income streams and want to be able to diversify their farming. And they recognise that what they've been doing for the last 20 or 30 or 40 years is, is not going to end up in a happy place. And, and so there are opportunities there and there are alternative voices, but they need to, we need to be able to, to facilitate them to come through more. G'day, um, Charlie uh, made reference to the potential importance of biobanks for um, coral reef conservation in the future. I just wanted to uh, ask David with regards to the terrestrial environment. I know some of the, um, a lot of what you talked about was in situ conservation, reducing stresses operating on in situ ecosystems, but given some of the SIRO modelling shows things like, I know for South East Queensland by about 2070, less than 5% of the floristics in any given area will be living in a bioclimatic envelope of which they have any evolutionary experience. Should we not be undertaking massive uh, latitudinal 
translocation exercises and a similar sort of um, sequel um, biobank situation to cope with those latitudinal uh, migrations of entire uh, climate systems? Wow, that's a huge question. Um, I, I think there is evidence to, to, to indicate that, that's, that, that some of those kinds of approaches are important, assisted translocations, um, assisted migrations, but it's got to be done very carefully because uh, sometimes the, um, the approach can be massively um, counterproductive. So I think to the turn of the previous century, the concerns about what happened when foxes were introduced to Australia and people started to move live birds to Tasmania. And they've done really well in Tasmania, but they've had really big impacts as well. So there's, there's a need to think about some of these things carefully in an ecological context, or the, the, um, the solution might be worse than the problem was in the first place. So this, there does need to be some deep thinking about that. At the same time, I think there's a lot to be said for thinking about where are those places that are most likely to persist the longest as key refugia? And, and how might we manage those key refuges? It's a bit like what David Bowman was talking about in the context before. So let's not just launch into some of these things without thinking deeply about what it might mean and some of the implications on, on the way. Oh, you haven't asked Queenslanders. We've got cantos, and they cantos will fix anything. <laughs> <laughs> Every time someone talks about geoengineering solutions, I have a vision of cane toads kind of being vaulted into the stratosphere. As, you know, they seem like a good idea for a problem at some point. We'll see how well that worked. But anyway, um, probably got two more questions. So we've got somebody up back here. Oh, hi. Lynn Johnson, Match Needs More. It seems like one of the key stresses is the constant lack of funding. And I just wanted to get the panel's thoughts on um, the fact that the legal trade in endangered species is worth 320 billion annually to some of the biggest luxury brands in the world, and, um, but they pay virtually nothing other than token CITES permits costs. And could these funds, um, if say 1% of the legal trade could be reinvested into conservation, be used to um, re help our ecosystems recover? And why should business make so, money, so much money and pay so little? Uh, cost towards uh, conservation. Okay, so we've, we've looked at, at this and recently published on this issue. So the estimate in a terrestrial context is that Australia is, is spending presently one-tenth of what it needs to, to uh, conserve its terrestrial threatened species. So if you look at Australia as a comparator to the US, the mainland USA, in, in terms of similar land mass, Australia's background, Australia's mammal extinction rate is 34 times what they've seen in the USA. So it's, there's a funding issue that's that's critical, and and the cost of sorting out that problem is about equivalent to um, one submarine over a 10-year period. So let's park that to, to one side. The second thing is that our legislation. Um, as a comparator with the USA is, is also important. So the US Endangered Species Act, in its present form, uh, as long as Donald Trump doesn't get at it, actually works in terms of maintaining species and recovering species, and ours doesn't. And so that means that the reforms in a legislative context are really important as well. There's no doubt that business doesn't, doesn't 
kinky in this space either. And there are many businesses that really want to see something happen, not only with biodiversity, but with tackling climate change. And present governments are completely out of step with what many aspects of business, and I'm not talking about Exxon or Shell or others, but many other businesses really do want to see the change. Five minutes left, so if you can keep your questions to the point, we might be able to knock off a couple more. Hi, sorry, this might be a little bit of a wrong question because it's a different type of question. Um, I know the way over from New Zealand for this um, to like kind of go my mum's place because she's doing a PhD at the moment, and we're um, and I'm also studying and I'm doing cultural anthropology as well as biodiversity, environmental science, and ecology. And my question kind of stems to like, do you believe that the process of change towards the planet and the climate has also to incorporate and change uh, us as human, our thought and our knowledge towards the planet and species on the planet in terms of like Western ideologies and the value of land rather than just the ability to use it? Yeah. Um we all have some thoughts on this. Um, I, I think it does. Climate change is a classic example of the tragedy of the commons, right? Um, that uh, for the short-term profit of a small number of corporations, we are destroying the entire planet for everybody. And the problem here is that we have a corrupted sort of sense of um, how to, to value resources um, and assets. Uh, we don't place uh, proper value on functioning ecosystems and, and stable climates uh, as long as there's no price on carbon. As long as it costs nothing to put carbon pollution into the atmosphere, uh, there's really no impetus for um, uh, energy producers to stop doing that. And so I think this is an example of uh, where we need to sort of change our thinking about how, you know, in both our economic thinking, um, uh, how we, again, um, you know, price uh, carbon, uh, but this can be extended to other environmental problems. Uh, ecosystems have great intrinsic value. Um, and it's not just ecosystem services. Economists love to frame this in terms of you know, ecosystems, their only value is what they can provide to us. Um, it doesn't recognize that there is intrinsic value in a functioning Earth. Uh, just yesterday, I actually tweeted, uh, some, somebody tweeted something about how, you know, uh, the climate change is costing the economy, you know, nearly a trillion dollars a, a year. Um, and the point here is that um, in a lifeless, <laughs> You know, in an in, un, inhabitable, unhabitable planet, there is no economy. Um, and so we have for too long allowed sort of economists to frame these questions and problems very narrowly and to not properly put value, uh, intrinsic value, on functioning ecosystems in a stable climate. Thanks, Joe. Uh, there's been a lot, a lot of discussion uh, about the damage that climate um, or global heating is doing to biodiversity, uh, but not much about the role of biodiversity as the thermostat on this planet. It's life on Earth that created and maintained 
uh, a stable climate for thousands of years in which humanity evolved. What can and must be done to recognize the role of biodiversity as the planet's thermostat, and what must we do to restore that? All right, I'm happy to, to feel that. Um, yeah, life is, you know, the, the carbon cycle, um, that's basically life on Earth, is an intrinsic part of the climate system, as you alluded to. So um, we increasingly, uh, we have come to understand that you can't attack problems like climate change without appreciating um, the, the role that living things play in a habitable planet and a stable climate. And this, of course, is part of why um, we have to think about massive reforestation um, and regenerative agriculture and all of these other things. To solve the climate crisis, we're going to need to stop the problem at its source. We have to stop worsening the problem by um, you know, stopping putting carbon pollution into the atmosphere. Uh, but we also have to think very carefully about agriculture, uh, how we manage ecosystems, um, fossil fuel burning is about two-thirds of the total carbon emissions, so it's the lion's share of the problem, but that leaves another third that has to do with land management, uh, deforestation, agriculture, all of these other things that, you know, involve our relationship with life on Earth. Um, and that means to really tackle this problem, we have to stop burning fossil fuels, but we have to do all these other things as well. I would add, well, I guess it's probably that Google Earth, Earth, Earth System Science because we're not going to be looking at atmospheric science or marine science or whatever science. We're looking at the Earth as a system and it's Earth System Science which is really going to take over. It's an integrated thing and it is big business and it is the future of an awful lot of what was science divided up into petitions which no longer exist. That would be so um, We're just about out of time. Um, I wanted to thank you all and say that on behalf of the room, I think we forgive you for your vintage, your colour, <laughs> your gender. Um, you have transcended all these things with your everybody and um, I'll leave, release you to the next session. Thank you very much. This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit.